0: if you want to see that story in more detail go into Jeremiah 39 and actually you have to start back in 37 and 38 and kind of read the the storyline along to kind of get the build up because you get to see how horrible they were treating poor Jeremiah at that time and the the real d- dire straits that he was in with his life really being in peril and then God rescues him supernaturally through the hands of the enemy not his own people who were the ones that were persecuting him. And what a story there is now. What a lesson. All right, so last week um, we did a really good start on the promises of God in those two um, uh, covenants, right? So I prepared for you a sheet, and you can take a, pull that sheet out and take a look. and. It just gives you the basic bullet points of those two covenants that they're before you today while we 're talking the the promise of God through the Abrahamic covenant and those basic principles that he prov- he was to provide for them through that promise, a land a seed and a nation. This was an unconditional promise from God through Abraham, right and in that, what we see you can see through the bullet points that I 've put kind of at the bottom it 's unconditional it 's forever. It, it, that covenant was made with an individual, with one man, Abram, right, and the re, it resulted in his salvation. It said in uh, Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And this, therefore, is a covenant of grace. Correct. So that was the Abrahamic covenant that initiated uh, this this promise of a land, a seed, and a nation. All right, then we go into the covenant of the law. Now, I, I kind of rephrase it a little bit this time. Instead of calling it the Mosaic covenant, I call it the covenant of the law of the land. So I want you to fix the idea that the law, the law wasn't just to govern the people. It was to govern the people upon the land that God was placing them on. So if you think of it in the timeline of history where it was going on, they were coming out of Egypt. They were still in the wilderness. They were at Mount Sinai. God gave them the law. He says, I'm going to put you on the land. And when you get there, this is how you're to live. Now, why? Why, why did he have rules that his people had to live by? Okay. So that they would be a blessing. Oh, well, absolutely. They had to have some kind of a governmental rule that's logic, okay? She was so pragmatic there. Yes? So it would show the, um, the coming of Christ? Okay? Yeah, okay. The, the idea that that in this the their pictures that they were given they were given and it does say that on the on this synopsis i gave you that it was a tutor to lead them to christ that was the, one of the purposes of the law right because ultimately it was to do what glorify god they were to be a light on a hill to the world around them that was the whole reason god created that nation was so that the world would come to know who god was through this designed people group right so this is why it was so important that the picture not get broken okay when god makes covenant and he makes a covenant for the purpose of bringing himself glory so that the world will see who god is and and come to him then when man messes up the picture what happens it does. It messes up the gospel message of who, who God is, right? So um, I just want to go one step further with uh, with that whole analogy there, and since we're all into analogies these days, you know, the, the picture of marriage is the same thing. We, and we've been talking about this in, a, in my uh, AI community group that I'm in with, with Lois and her husband, Vaughn, who leads us so well, um, The marriage was designed by God to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, right? And when man messes up the picture by not being faithful and not living that marriage vow in purity and in holiness and in righteousness and and in a way which honors God... And I got to say it to the ladies who may not like this, but this is the truth. There's a chain of command in it because Christ is the head, so is your husband the head, okay? And the purpose for that is not that he thwarted over you, but that there is a design picture in that that's the gospel message. And when you mess up the gospel message, you mess up the gospel, right? So here we have now with... with, um, what we've looked at so far are these two promises. This promise of the covenant of the law of the land was so that God would put a people upon the land. The first promise was the land that was promised to Abraham would be theirs. That's their first promise. The second one was that that nation then would become um, a nation upon the land. So that was part of that covenant of the law, that they would become a nation on the land and through this administrative as Susan brought up the idea of a of a concept of rules and governing and the way a system right for them to live under so that they would become that nation and then with it came then the two um, the two options right if you obey then God would do what bless them as a nation and if they did not obey then God would curse. And in that curse, one of the ultimate curses would be that what would happen to them if they would not follow God's righteousness... He would, he would remove them off of the land. And so that's where we are in Ezekiel. God is finally, after all these years of them breaking and breaking and breaking and, and God calling to them and sending prophets and sending his word through all, the, all his various prophets. And there are many, many, as you know, in the Old Testament. Think of all the prophets that, that there are. One that we've spent a lot of time with is Jeremiah along with Ezekiel, and the two of them being contemporaries and kind of overlapping each other in this time frame. But we see Jeremiah, even before Ezekiel, we saw Jeremiah telling them this is what's going to happen. And they did not like that message. And so when we, when we were in chapter the chapter where he talked about them not even building up the breaches in the wall and not building the wall even higher, but rather whitewashing it, and these false prophets were saying, don't worry about it. Oh, that's them. We're Earlier in the, te- in, the, in the account, he said, oh, well, we're in the pot. We're safe. Let those guys worry about building houses out there, but we're safe. We're not going anywhere, right? And what did Ezekiel say to them? No, I'm going to judge you all the way to the border. You are going to be exiled. And certainly God did that because they had done what? Yeah, they broke the covenant of the law. This covenant of the law, which they, sta- they stood before Moses at the time, and they said, all that you have said, we will do. And as generation after generation passed, they, they became so vile that when we, first, when we first started Ezekiel, do you remember uh, the, the vision of, of where um, God takes Ezekiel to the temple? Yeah. What was going on at the temple? all kinds of ideas. It wasn't just like one little mistake or one little affront, was it? It was so blatant. It was at every gate, and it it covered all of the uh, the various people groups of the Israelite people, the women, the, the men, the leaders, right? All of them were involved in this kind of breaking of covenant. Now, how serious does God consider his covenants? They are so serious that in what we looked at last week with Genesis, what you see is when Abraham, or Abram I should call him at that point, when God makes a covenant with Abram, he demonstrates to him the covenant process. And in doing that, he kills the animal, right? He cuts an animal from head all the way down the middle. There's been a small trench that would have been built and the dead carcass is laid on each side. And Abraham is told to do these things. so he does this. And the blood then would, would go into the little uh cravine basically that between where the blood would flow down. And then what, what did God do? He walked in between the pieces of flesh, indicating what? That number one he would take he would take the punishment if the covenant was broken, first of all, does God ever break his word? No. no, his word is yes and amen always right but but in that what we got what we got to learn when we did our covenant study was how serious covenant breaking would be because in in actuality, what the person who particularly if it was two men that were making a covenant with one another, they would walk between the the, uh, the blood and they would do it in a f- the form of a figure eight is what I have been told. This is, th- was their practice. And they would pass one another in that figure eight walking through the blood and then they would stand and they would each stand on each side of the blood. The blood then would be upon their feet and upon the, the hems of their garment and they would pronounce their oaths to one another. And in doing that, what they were saying before God was, God, if I break my word, may you do to me as has been done to this animal. My life is in your hand. You have every right to take my life if I break this covenant. Okay, so that's how serious covenant is. So here we have Israel. They have broken and broken, blatantly broken, all the way to the very temple itself. So that what, where we saw then is in, in that passage in Ezekiel that the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, left the temple, right? Left the city and then left them for their their sieges, Correct. Okay, so that kind of gives us that back, backdrop. Now, with Jeremiah, what we, what we have seen um, in my little lineup that I've given to you is I just wanted you to see where he's talking about in Jeremiah 31 that we looked at this week, where, he, where we are in the timeline of things when he gives this prophetic statement. So I just did it in a way that you could really clearly see it, and I didn't want us to have to do it in class. It would take too long. Um, so what we see about Jeremiah is that uh, these, these things I'm showing you are in relationship to the kings of Ezekiel that we're looking at. So everything when you read Jeremiah right now is really familiar to you. If you read it, you'll, you'll catch on really quickly and you'll see lots of uh, comparable v- verses there. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied before, during, and after those three sieges. So that's what I've got up here for you visually. So we see him in Jeremiah 1. He's before the first siege you get to about 24 there. He's, in, he's just after that first siege. In Jeremiah 26, he says he's in the first year of King Jehoiakim. He was sent to warn Judah and Jerusalem and tell them to repent. Then I slipped in there. This was a, Shortly after this is the time when Ezekiel begins his prophesying here right? Because it's right after the second siege, and we know Ezekiel begins to prophesy in the fifth year of Jehoiakim's exile. So it's the second siege. Then you keep moving, you see the second siege, and then before the third siege, in Jeremiah 31, which was our verse this week, that's where you see the promise of a future new covenant with God for Israel, right? If you consider this in perspective, to what you know about the law and how they broke it and how God is now judging them, then I think you'll get a better understanding of what the promise of that new covenant for Israel is. We understand it for us, don't we? I mean, con- I mean, what is the new covenant for you and me? It's pretty much the same thing, except that we're not Israel, are we? So we have to say, okay, there's an application of the new covenant that we get to enjoy, right? What book tells us about the fact that we get to be grafted into that? Romans Romans, chapter 11, that because of their disobedience and their unbelief, that there's a period of time in history, and this right here, it's called the Church Age, that you and I, from the time when Jesus inaugurated that new covenant that is spoken of in Jeremiah that's prophesied to come, we, the church age right now, get to, get to come into it by grafting in, according to Romans 11, right? Has Israel, however, entered into this new covenant in Christ yet? Has the nation enjoyed the things that we've seen so far? No, so those are future. They're promises to Israel, but they are promises to Israel, the nation, okay? I, I don't want us to not get a full doctrine on what the new covenant is about. There is a there is a enjoyment that we get in the church age, and we are grafted in, and we are a unique people that Christ will take to himself, and we are his bride. But there is also yet to come a time when God is going to initiate this covenant with his people, Israel. So let's take a look at... This new covenant. And then we're going to go back and look at all of the rest of the stuff that we've done. But I'm trying to complete our three covenants because we started them last week. I want to finish this third one up and keep the whole package together in your brain, okay? Uh, And for some of you, this is all old news, and I know that. But we looked at Jeremiah 31. She gave us 27 to... I think it was short. It was kind of short. But I want you to open up your Bibles so that you get the whole section of that uh, 30, uh, 31. Okay, it's 31. She only gave us 27 to 29 to look at. Because why? There was a mention in there about the sour grapes, right? And we're going to go back and look at that when we look at our, at our three chapters that we worked this week. But before we do that, I want to finish out the whole covenant concept. So let's take 27 and take it all the way down to 34, okay? And we have already looked at this, so this is not new to you. Is everyone with me? Yeah? Okay. I'm not hearing a whole lot of noise out there. I'm getting a little nervous. Okay. (laughs) I just want to make sure you're following me on this. I just think it's really important that we get the whole picture of the covenant. I want you to understand that Israel broke her covenant. The covenant she broke was a temporal thing anyway. It was only to be in place until the coming of the Christ. Their breaking of that does not totally eliminate them from God's plan, does it? When God made a promise with Abraham initial, initially saying that he would have a, a land, a seed, and a nation, and that it would be forever, what does he mean by that? Forever. So is God done with Israel? No. And so what we have to do is, along with making application to us, we also want to make sure we get our doctrines right about what his plan is for the nation of Israel as well. There is a nation promised yet, that he is still yet going to fulfill. So he says um, in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-nine. what about Israel? This is really cool because once you see this, you're going to like this. What does he say there? What will Israel no longer do? Okay, so no longer say, and I'm going to shorten it, sour grapes right? Now, what does he mean by no longer will he say sour grapes? Do you, has, did anybody kind of work that whole thing through to really get the full understanding of what, he, what they were saying there then? Yeah. Is that true in the, in the covenant of the law? And was that true how God dealt with Israel in that day? Yes, because what kind of a covenant were they in? National, right? Look at your notes about what what the difference is between the first covenant and the second. The second covenant was a national covenant. It was for a people who were going to be living upon the land and governing themselves upon the land, right? So when God, when when the people on the whole began to sin, although... uh god would deal with them individually we're going to see that when we go into one of our chapters here but he also had to deal with them on on a national level too he had to judge the nation because the nation was his picture right was his picture of who he is to the world they were to declare the glories of god were they were they declaring him as a glorious holy god Were they living in righteousness and holiness upon the land so that the people would go, wow, what a mighty God? God would only be able to bless them if they were living in holiness. So when God stopped blessing them, what did that do to God's name in the world? it blasphemed his name is what the scripture tells us so often over and over he says and you blaspheme my name we just did it in the book of james even where it talked about the the um the iniquity of people and their sins causes god's name to be blasphemed among the gentiles right all right so no longer will say sour grapes meaning no longer will he do what national judgments right? One day there's going to no longer be national judgments. Instead, he's going to say that covenant is going to be done. We are going to move into a new covenant. It's going to be on an individual basis and we are going to work with the individual heart, right? And each one will do it, will bear their own penalty. Is that not what we saw in our homework this week? Yes, he says this is true. And as a matter of fact, by the way, P.S., it's really always been true, He's always dealt individually, but they got lost. Somehow they got confused about the fact that, yes, there's national judgment, there's also individual judgment. Both are true, right? All right, so you don't lose one just because you have the other, but they had lost sight of that somehow. He says in this new covenant there's a promise to them that what is what is ultimately some of these promises? Look in, in uh, 33, 32, 33, all those verses right in there, the ones that we... We didn't do this week. What is he promising them in the new covenant? Because I just want to make a list of what the new covenant's about. Okay, not like the covenant made before, meaning the law, right? And what verse is that? 30 what? 32, okay? So, that's in 32 of Jeremiah. Let me put this up here. So, you know, that's Jeremiah, okay? So, it's not like the covenant made before, so it won't be like this one, all right? And? Okay, I will put what in their heart? My law, so that's what they had was the law, but now I'm going to put my law in their heart. And that's verse what? Okay, 33. In 33, he goes on to tell them, then what will that result in if they have the law in their heart? Then I will be their God. I will be their God. Now, this is interesting, cause he's saying this at this time in history, when these sieges are taking place, when Babylon is coming in and taking over them and exiling them for their sin. I just think the perspective, when you really lay these together, it really helps develop it. I will be their God. Was he being their God right here? Were they allowing him to be their God? No. no. He was exiling them because of all the idolatry that was going on, right? All of the, all of the sinning in the abominations. I will be their God and they will be my people. All right, so that's also in, in uh, 33. So I will make that new covenant. A, um, I'm going to write on here, new covenant. All right, not like the covenant that they had before. So now I want to take you uh, for the purpose of cross-referencing um, into two New Testament places. I want us to go into Hebrews, and I know most of you know these things, so this is all just review, but that this is really good for putting it all together when we're looking at it here for this Ezekiel study. I think it helps us develop it better. Let's go to Hebrews 8, uh, verse, let's see, it's in verse 13. And he says about a new covenant, he again in Hebrews is speaking about the new covenant and he's training up in the book of Hebrews the Jews at that time in history who were at this point in history, right? And he is writing to the church and he's explaining them how the new covenant now has come and therefore what has happened to the old. And what does he say in 8.13? Yep, he says the new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is is becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to disappear, right? So he's talking you know, this was written before the temple had actually fallen, set, fallen in 70 A.D., but it was after the inauguration of the new covenant. Jesus had died, he had risen, right? And the church was being established, and so he was training them up, look, what, what was is about to become obsolete. It is going to be gone. I want you to know this is something new. The old is obsolete. Then you go over to verse um, or chapter 10. I'm just showing you two verses. There's more. If you want to read all of 8, 9, and 10, it would be really good for you if you're not familiar with it. In number 9, he says, what does he do in order to establish this new covenant? In chapter 10, verse 9. Yeah, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. So are you seeing where I was teaching last week about the old covenant? It's, it was temporal. It was not supposed to be forever. It was only a temporary thing. It was only to be temporary until what happened? Until the seed should come. So we looked at several verses last week. So look, look at your uh, review notes there where it says uh, in Galatians three nineteen and 25. Do you see it on your notes right there? The very bottom one. It's in place until what should happen? The, she, the seed should come. And who is the seed according to Galatians three sixteen? Jesus Christ. And who was the seed initially promised to? Well, yes, okay, you're right, all the way back to Eve. But in the first covenant was promised to? Abraham, right? I, will, I am promising you a land, a seed, and a nation. That seed is Christ, right? And the law was only in place until the seed should come. What Jeremiah is showing us here then is this, he's saying, look, in one day I'm going to make a new covenant. When that seed comes, this one here, this is going to become obsolete. It's going to be done away with right and he says it's only there and the reason for the law is to make sin known to us that's the purpose it was that's what its purpose was even for the hebrew nation when they were living upon the land they needed to understand how, what holiness was and the best way to know that was to understand the laws of god so god gave them law and he and he said also of it of the the system itself it was a tutor to lead them to christ because everything within the temple worship system pointed to the Christ, the sacrifices, the light, the bread on the, the table, the single door entrance into. I mean, all these symbolic things were there as pictures, right? Which is going to be so much fun when we get to the end of Ezekiel and we start seeing the new temple in the millennial king- kingdom to come and the differences between what, what God gave them then and what he is going to give to us for our millennial years. It's going to be fun. You're going to love it. Okay, so now what we see then is in the new covenant, he says, and I'm going to put these things into their heart. They will be my people. I will be their God. And then he says in uh, 34, what? Yeah, so there will be no need for anyone to ever have to teach one another again, right? No one is going to need to say, know the Lord. Why? Why? What does it say? Does it say, in thirty-four? For they will what? How many of them? All will, all will know me. Now this is significant. For they will all. There will be no need to teach. Know the Lord. You're not going to need to be taught that. He says, for you will all, and I would underline that, will all know me. Now how is that possible? Do you think all in the days when they were sinning, all supposedly knew God, right? They all were part of the Israel nation. They were all supposed to be serving God. Did they all know God? Did they all know God? They knew about him, but did they know him? Right? But in the new covenant, he says it's going to be a different kind of covenant. It's not going to be an external law, it's going to be an internal law. I'm going to place it upon your heart. And he's going to do so by his spirit, by the way, in another verse. It'll say that later in Ezekiel 36. We're going to get there. But he says, and then you will all know me. That's in Jeremiah 31 34. Okay. Now, I want to look at a couple of cross-references to help you better understand how this is possible. How is it that all will know him? How is that going to happen? If this is something that's coming in the future, it's going to be for the nation of Israel, right? Because he says, I'm going to do that. I'm I'm going to save for myself a nation. I'm going to place them upon the land, and they will never again be torn from that land, right? That's the promise. Hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for that time frame to come. We know what he's talking about is the millennial kingdom, way down here, right? But there's going to come a time when God is going to do this. So, right here is where he's saying for Israel, their new covenant as a nation, right? when they enter into the new covenant will be during that time in the millennial kingdom now how is he going to get them to that place and how is it possible that all of them are going to do what they didn't do before right this all ties into what we're looking at this week in these verses so i just want to show it to you now from from these cross references Zechariah 13 8 and 9 go there can we find these places is the problem Because they are Old Testament, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, oops. Okay, it's almost at the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah 13. Let's look first at verses 8 and 9. And if if you will pay really close attention, I want you to see that in all of these references, he, he, there's a little phrase, in that day, okay? So I want you to say, in that day, as your preface to everything, and know that what is talking about, in that day of the millennial kingdom to come, okay? In that day. Okay, what does he say in Zechariah 13, 8 and 9? What's going to do? Right, so there's going to be, in, in order for that day to come, in that day when this is going to be accomplished, he says two-thirds will perish, one-third will be what? Refined and purified, and what, there was another word too, and Tested interesting okay so that's in Zechariah 13 verse uh eight and nine okay so we know that there's going to be something that's going to happen before they they're able to be in that day established upon their their new kingdom to totally be his people which they weren't before and he says in order to get there in Zechariah he says two-thirds are going to perish but one-third will be refined purified and tested right all right, then let's go to Zechariah 12, 11 through 14, and let's see, how do they get to that place of purification? Read 11 through 14. In that day again, what, what does it say? Yeah, those, those uh, four, three or four verses through 14, 11 to 14. Of chapter twelve, that's correct. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Haddon women in the plain of Meghetto. The land will mourn each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of vows of David, their wives, the clan of vows their wives. That's correct. Keep going. All of them, and each by themselves is the way my translation reads, and each by themselves. So what is that telling you is going to be happening in that day? There's going to be individual mourning. Now, what do you think that's talking about? What is the idea of mourning? Loss, there's going to be the the tribulation events are going to be having taken place. But what do you think they're going to mourn? Because what is the end result of it then in Zechariah 13.1? And on that day, what's going to happen? A fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Now, so what was the morning about? Their sin and their impurities. They were repenting. There is your individuals repenting in that day. So first it says then that each individual will each by that themselves will mourn, and it's mourning over sin. I'm going to add that in in parentheses because you pick it up in the next uh, section where you see that's what they're talking about. They're not mourning over people dying in the tribulation. They're mourning over their sin and their impurities. And then in verse 13, it says, "Um, in that day, a fountain will be opened. And what is that fountain talking about? (laughs) that's right a fountain will be open uh, for the house of David now see there's your national covenant who's it for? the house of David that's all Israel that's the nation this is a national thing that's going to happen but how is it going to happen? one by one by one and it has already told us Two-thirds in that day that are living in that day, two-thirds are not going to weep and mourn and repent. They're going to what? Die. One-third will make it through that time right here we call the tribulation. They will make it through that tribulation. They will be refined and purified. And they will mourn over their sin and they will look to Jesus and a fountain will be poured out upon them in that day. And in that way... All Israel will be saved. But who is the all? The, those who individually come into faith. Those who individually say, yes, Jesus, who bow their knee. You don't get in through national anything, right? Although the law was put in place as a national covenant, and nationally they all stood together and said, yes, Lord, we will. And, of course, promptly they broke it. But it was a temporal thing. It was for the purpose of governing a people on the land until the seed should come and a new covenant was put in place. I know this is old, refreshing for some of you, but for some of you, this is not. This is news. This is like putting together the pieces of the puzzle. And it does not hurt for us to go back and remind ourselves of these things. I think looking at this, what Ezekiel is promising here to us about the sour grapes, no more sour grapes. Why? Well, what does that mean? No more national judgment. Why? Won't well, be need for it. The law is going to be gone. It's all going to be individual from that point forward. In that day, from that point forward, it's all going to be on the individual. For in that day, a fountain will be opened open for the house of David. So there's your your national covenant that he's going to do. And then he says, and so, according to Romans, let's go to Romans 11, uh, 26 and 27. And see, this is the one where I told you we see the grafting in, how we are presently already in that covenant, are we not? But has Israel the nation done so? Not yet. We're still waiting for this to happen. So go to Romans 11, though, and see what God says about, even though Israel right now is in a place of rebellion, still being disobedient, temporarily then God has grafted us the Gentiles in and he's birthed this new thing called the church through the new inauguration of the new covenant when Jesus died on the cross we're in that covenant that new covenant later Israel the nation will come into that covenant they haven't done it yet but what he says then in verse 26 and 27 is what someone read that and thus what does he say wow i love even the next one from the standpoint of the gospel they are enemies for your sake but from the standpoint of god's choice they are beloved for the sake of the fathers for the gifts and the calling of god are irrevocable isn't that exciting to see the sour grapes no more does that sour grapes make better sense now the idea of sour grapes. So when we go in there and start looking at the sour grapes, I wanted to settle that part first in your mind because then we aren't distracted with that. We can go on and look at all the points that he's making in there to them as a people. In that day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of, of David. So this is Zechariah 13.1. And then the last one is in Romans where he says, All Israel will be saved. But they'll only be saved if they individually first repent and come to him. And if they don't, they will be in that day. They will be killed. They will die for because they would not repent. All right. So that takes care of our full pa- package of the old the covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of the law, and the co- the new covenant. Does everyone have a pretty good flow of thought now on that? The, and I think... I think, it, for me personally, it's just really helpful to go back and lay those out side by side with one another every now and then to remind myself of the distinctions of them and the purposes of them and how God's fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant when Jesus came and then inaugurated then in that new covenant that he promised through, the, through his, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others, okay? All right, now. Okay, so now we are ready... If there aren't any questions, are there any questions at this point about sour grapes and about that new covenant? So what does sour grapes mean? No more national judgment. God is going to stop judging nations. He's going to start judging what? The individual. Okay. But actually, he's always judged the individual, hasn't he? Yes, Raquel. Mm-hmm. You know those whole the old hymns that we sing yeah, in our those are some of the best doctrinal teachings around if you just listen to the words of the old hymns they are loaded and sadly we don't really know them I remember we had a guy Greg Grimes do you remember Greg guys from way back he, when he used to do our music ministry here he was so amazing but he would tell the histories behind many of the songs before we would sing them and it meant so much more to me when I would sing those words and understood the doctrine, that he, he would bring out a point. Either he would tell a storyline about the author of it and how the story was writ- how the song was written, or he would just go into some of the statements in there and give you the doctrines behind it. He was like a teacher on top of everything else. He was, so, he was really a, an amazing guy. hmm Well, do. Do that. And then send it to Lois, and she'll send it out mass media to everybody if you can. I mean, I don't want to put a burden on you because I want you to get your homework done. I don't want you to do extra stuff and then get stuck. But just make sure. But if you have time and you want to. Uh, Lois was was talking um, with Carol earlier about that list I mentioned last week that Carol has of the kings. And we're going to see if we can't figure out a way to legally get a copy of that and get it out to everybody. We want to make sure we don't plagiarize, but we we would like to see everybody have that list of the of those kings. I have and if if Carol's does not pan out, I have a book of lists. I'll bet there's a list in there. And that book is written for for copyright freedom. It's it's a really good book, so just so you know that. Okay. So, now then, now it's time for us to go into each of our um, chapters. We're going to start in Ezekiel 17 and in there we have all kinds of really good stuff going on. 17, let's start by just talking about our keywords. Keywords are always a great way to start because it gives you your foundation to build off of. Keywords help you to focus on the author's intended purpose, not your, what your good warm fuzzies lead you to, okay? So what were keywords in chapter 17? There's always the people. There are the people that are mentioned. Oh, the eagles. Yes, they're... Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said people. Eagles. Yes, the eagles. (laughs) Okay, so let's put eagle up here. And that's the imagery. Right? It's the imagery that's given to us there. Did you like my little eagle on your piece of paper, on your chart that I gave you? Okay. Yeah. The eagle, and as a matter of fact, there are eagles, there's two of them, one, a great eagle, and another great eagle, right? So there's two of them. Ah, thank you so much, you did good. Covenant. After all the talk of covenant, how could you miss it, right? (laughs) Okay, there... Very good. So just let's just jump right to it, Craig. What is the conclusion? It's about covenant, is it not? Okay. How many times did you see in there the word covenant and, in, and things that are related to covenant, the idea of the breaking of oaths and so forth that, that are mentioned in here, that at the end of it, it's like, okay, it's about the covenant, it's about the oath. And ultimately, what I thought was really interesting is, who is this covenant between? We did our cross references right into what was it? Second Kings, right? Um, we looked at Second Chronicles and Jeremiah thirty-seven, and what was the other one? There was another one. I think those were the two. I guess those are the ones we looked at. Jeremiah twenty-seven. Okay, so when you looked at those two kings, who were those two kings? Babylon and Egypt, okay, so how, maybe we ought to back up a sec, how did you see this book break down, this chapter break down, is there a good segment and division in this that, that gives you a, a way to look at it, that's, it really breaks into two parts, doesn't it, yes, okay, so one through ten is what? Imagery, and then 11 to 24 is interpretation. That's exactly right. So if you want to mark your paper in that way so that you see it, that verses 1 to 10 of chapter 17 is your imagery, and it's the imagery of two great eagles. So it's imagery. Then starting in 11, verse 11, all the way to the end then, is the interpretation of it. So what I did, let me show you how I handled mine, just so you get some ad- additional training here. I made a chart like this, two columns. Don't you love it? I have my little imageries put in there, too, my pictures of my eagles, so I could see the two different eagles. Um, uh, there's ta- later, it's going to talk about a great cedar, Right. But in here, what I did is I put my parable and the riddle right here, and then I put my interpretation next to it. And they laid side by side in my column that way. It just makes it so much easier when you're observing in order to make your comparisons of what was said and then what, what the interpretation is talking about, okay? All right, hopefully that's helpful to you a little bit. All right, so... Pardon? <laughs> sure, I can send it to you now that we're done. Yes, I can do that. Don't let me forget, okay? All right, so all right. So we have then the, the imagery and then the interpretation. So verses 1 through 6, let's break down the paragraphs, the titles here, the outline of it. 1 through 6 is what? How did you title that? great eagle. A great eagle. A great eagle. And then we got seven through nine, or no, seven through ten. Another great eagle. Those were tough titles, hard to come to, huh? Well, eventually, yes, it, we will. You're right because, but it really isn't in the first part of it. It doesn't come until uh, the vine part doesn't get mentioned until um, the interpretation. The Okay. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Okay. Since you bring it up, you tell me the interpretation. Then. Who is this? E- who are these eagles? The first eagle is told to us right away, right? In the first uh, part of the interpretation in verse 11, who is that first great eagle? Babylon. And, in, and we know Babylon's king to be Nebuchadnezzar. So you can write Nebuchadnezzar in there. Okay. It, okay, there you go. That's true. That's a good pickup. That's right. Okay, so we have a great eagle. We know it's Nebuchadnezzar. So then we have another great eagle. Now, in the storyline, what's going on with this great eagle? What does he tell us? Yeah, he's plucking things off in there. In the interpretation, what does he say about him? Yeah. So this first great eagle takes the second great eagle, right? Is that what it tells us? He took of the royal family and he did what with him? He made a covenant with him. So who do we know in these these two kingdoms or these two great eagles, who would the dynamics be between? It isn't Egypt and Babylon. It's, it's, it's Nebuchadnezzar, and who was the one that he made a covenant with that he took that? He, Jehoiachin maybe, okay. Or Zedekiah. Is that what it's talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. So it really looks to me like I put Zedekiah, but you know what? Jeho- if you, even if you put Jehoiachin. Oh. Um, so you're saying that the first one, the great eagle, is Jehoiachin? No, no, I'm saying the great eagle is Babylon. Okay, good. That would have been Ezekiel and the rest, right? And that would be Jehoiachin, okay. But did Jehoiachin did Jehoiachin break a covenant with him? Zedekiah did. Zedekiah did.
1: And went to Egypt for help. And and so he started going in a different direction. So, what came about then is is that, you know, just all fell apart and Nebuchadnezzar finished off.
0: Wow. Wow, I didn't get any of that. Okay, so, I uh, you know what? Maybe we'd be better off to just say it was a king and it was a king, because I, I I I did a lot of research on this and those were not the interpretations I got at all. So I don't want to mess us up, because what I do know this is what I do know. It's about the end time. It's the king as Nebuchadnezzar is named, and it's another king. Um, in, and it says right here he took one of the royal family. I am assuming that is the other the other great eagle that he took right and he and he made a covenant with him putting him under oath and he also took away the mighty of the land of Israel that would would have been Zedekiah during the days of Zedekiah and took everyone away uh, that he might be in subjection, not exalting himself, but keeping his covenant that it might continue but he rebelled against him, sending envoys to Egypt. That he might give him horses and many troops. Now, that would be Jehoachim. Right? That's Zedekiah. That's what I meant. That's Zedekiah. He will succeed. He who does such things, will he escape? And can he indeed break the covenant and escape? So we know Zedekiah broke covenant. So that's why I put him in there as that. The or- yep. That's right, it does. And it leads to them. So maybe we could even, if, in order to be fair, we could put any of the names of those kings in there, all three of the names of those kings in there. Ultimately, it was Zedekiah though that breaks this covenant at the end. Okay? So my interpretation is ultimately to the conclusion of that eagle imagery, he took him to Zedekiah who broke covenant. Okay. Is this? Yes. Okay. But that, well, and I know, I know. It doesn't really matter except because what really the emphasis here is on what subject? What is our major subject? Covenant. And it's about doing what? Breaking covenant, right? So, uh, so whether you think that eagle is Zedekiah or whether you think it's Egypt or whether you th- it doesn't, I don't guess that part really matters. Sadly, I know there's a, there is an actual interpretation. Kay Arthur and her curriculum says it's Zedekiah, okay? That's where I ended up landing. I went into commentaries and commentaries and commentaries, and they all went a gazillion different directions so that uh, nobody agrees, okay? They all look at it from a slightly different skew. Okay, so what you have to know is, as an in, as an inductive student, what is our goal? To get the major point, right? To get the inf- that's why we say, well, tell me what is the major point. I know we all want the exact interpretation on everything, but sometimes we don't always get it, do we? Do we? Sometimes we don't. Does Katie know it all? No, I don't. I'm telling you, I don't. But. What I want to do right now, I guess, would be to rein us all in and say what's most important is that we understand that whoever this representation is here, he broke covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So this great eagle, who t- the first one, the great eagle, he took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him. I made him the second great eagle. Because they're both great eagles. Why are they both great eagles? What was the imagery there? They're kings. They're rulers. Okay. So it was a ruler and a ruler. And in this case, obviously, the one ruler had made the other his ruler under him. It was. And we know Zedekiah is the 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 uncle to Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, Uh, actually, the the uncle. He's the uncle. Okay, go ahead. Say this. In, in uh,
1: Second Kings 24. Yeah. In the, uh, there's a uh, twenty four seventeen. Okay, read King it. Babylon
0: made his uncle, Madaniah. Yeah, his, his uncle.
1: uncle. If you go over to the side there, in the in the footnote, it says, i.e., Jehoiachin's
0: uncle. Okay. Oh, I thought it was Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's Nebuchadnezzar. uncle. Well, I was wondering about that. That confused me, but I just took it for what it said, that it was saying that it was Nebuchadnezzar's uncle. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar doing this with and then I'll I get it. Jesus they up. threw the other, that's where the twist was. Okay, good. Well, that's good clarification. I'm glad to hear that. So, so, Jeho- so Zedekiah actually is Hebrew? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's He's good to know. Good. Oh, Jehovah. Uhhuh.
1: He had a covenant with Nebuchadnezzar.
0: Right. He rebelled and went to Egypt. Right. Which is the right. going to the other great eagle. Right. Oh well, yeah, you could look you could look at it that way or you could just see that he Yeah, I, what, where I got the majority of my understanding about these two things was through looking at the interpretation, not looking at the imagery. Because the imagery is imagery, right? And we get confused. You have to have something concrete to go by. So I went into the interpretation, and I followed the storyline there of... It, he tells us right, a whole, right off the bat that that first great eagle is the king of Babylon. And then it says, and he took one of the royal family, which is another king... And made him. That's why I made he, that one. That that uh, as Zedekiah as an, the other king, as the other great eagle. How, however, I also got to say it's also what, what the precept curriculum has on the teacher's notes that those are the two eagles. It's these these two kings. I it was Egypt. Pardon. So what's the Pardon. Okay, in mine, the vine is Israel, Israel the nation, okay, because in the end he says about the about the grape vine, he says he does what with the grapevine? vine Let me see where does it say uh, I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck up the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth uh, uh, boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. There's my stately cedar. And the birds of every kind will nest under it. So who is that speaking up? The sprig that becomes a stately cedar. That is a messianic. Promise there, okay, we all agree on one thing. <laughs> Are we glad, okay, so uh, you know, I thought I had this all figured out, but obviously I need to go back and relook at it and see if I can refigure this all out because maybe I have not figured this out so well. I took the lead on what precept said because i didn't i I, did, I, I went right to the interpretation that's where I hung my hat, I said, okay, it's talking about two Two eagles, then the two that are mentioned here is the Babylonian king and then the king who's under him. And what happens? He breaks a covenant. Pharaoh, to talk about Pharaoh, yeah, and Pharaoh with his mighty army and the great company will not help him. Who's the him? him is Zedekiah. Right. So that would be the looking towards the other great Okay, people. there you go. So you took it the way I did. See, and I think okay, well But I don't know how the vine can can be the eagle and Yes, the Wow, okay. 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 I'm going to I'm going to say I know nothing. <laughs> I know nothing because I don't I don't I did not get my interpretation in that way. But I do know that in conclusion we still come to the correct interpretation. I hope, right? even if we disagree on the imageries of the items within the imagery right of who each one is actually representing and what it's representing i do like what you what you did say about the vine being always imagery through Israel. That is really true. And it's one of the reasons why earlier he said he had the wood of the vine and it was burned on both ends, remember? And what good is it? It's good just to go back into the fire and where it will be totally consumed. And so we're talking about Israel. And Israel has is always talked about that great vine. So that that could definitely be a good one to reevaluate. And I have known uh, precepts to be in error on things on occasion. So We'll see. I'll go back and look at it. Okay, so now, what do we see in 11 through 22 then about that statement there? What, what has happened? What does this king do, this royal family person? He's broken the covenant. Okay, so we know that that is who? Zedekiah. And he breaks his covenant. Now, I think this is really cool. When it says he breaks his covenant, what does God say about that? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. When he says he broke a covenant, we know that the covenant was between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar right? And when Zedekiah broke it, God says, you broke my covenant. Isn't that interesting? Why would God just say it in that way? Why would God call it my covenant as opposed to y- y'all's covenant? Where does, where does co- covenant initiate from? Whose idea is covenant? Who, so who possesses the concept and the, and the principles of covenant? I think that's why he's saying it that way. He's saying, look, you broke my covenant. This is my, my law. This is my principle of truth. This is my standard by which when the world looks upon it and sees its qualities, its characteristics, and how it's dealt with, it belongs to me. I set the standards on it. It is my covenant, right? So he's saying, and when you, you make a covenant between one another, when you make a covenant with your spouse in your, in your wedding day, Whose covenant are you making? Is it you and your husband's covenant? God is saying it's my covenant. When you make a vow, l- like a covenant, it is my covenant. I think that's interesting. Don't you? Well, I also right. God. True. Well that's true too. He does break it in that way as well right exactly that's true in that way as well. We know that here what he did is he broke this covenant and went down to Egypt to get help and that 's what the implication here about breaking the covenant is, and yet God still says, "You broke my covenant and partly it has to do with what with what Jeremiah had done already, right? What did Jeremiah told them about uh events that were to come? what did he Yeah. He says, you're going to go into Egypt. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years, plant, plant your vineyards there, build your houses there, settle in. He said, by the way, I will bless the nation where you are staying until I bring you back to the land. If you will submit to me in this, right? If you will submit to my discipline and recognize it as my discipline, then I will bless not only you, but the land that you're in. I think that's very interesting. H.J. Uh, and I watched a, a little bit of a movie. I got to see about this much of it. But it was the, the movie Daniel on uh, Roku last night. It was really cool. And in there, there was, there was exactly this thing going on where he was talking about, for 70 years they would go down. He started quoting to um, um, Cyrus, Cyrus. The, the prophecy of Jeremiah that for 70 years they would be in their captivity and then they would come out. Then he quoted to him the, the covenant or the uh, promise through Isaiah that Cyrus would set them free, and his, he was named by name. It was such a great little TV show. It was such a good one. If you got Roku, you should go and watch that one. You'll understand everything as it goes, unfolds because we're, we're in the midst of it right now studying it. So Netflix. Oh yeah, it is. That's where I'm watching it. That's what we did with Netflix. Okay, eleven to twenty-two. Then says Zedekiah breaks his covenant. All right. Now, what do we have then in twenty-three to twenty-four? Because of what God, how God views this, what does God say? What is your what is your title for those few verses there? What will the Lord do? Yeah, okay, there's a promise, the messianic promise in there as well, correct? And in relationship to the covenant issue, which is our major subject there, what's going on in that verse? What does he say he's going to do? What did you guys title that last paragraph? Okay. Okay. He provides for the remnant, okay? Okay, I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. So it's, in essence, what God is saying here then about covenant is, although man breaks his covenant, what will God do? He will keep his covenant, right? He's, the Lord says, I will do these certain things, right? I will exalt the. I guess I got my numbering off on this, didn't I? Um, all the choice men's troops. Okay, it should have been 21 instead of 22. And then this should have got to be 22. Okay, sorry about that. I miswrote. Okay, and so in all the choice, uh, men of the troops will fall by the sword. The survivors, the survivors will be scattered to every wind, and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. So he's talking about what they will do. Right? That's through 21, starting in 22, and says, "Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck up from the topmost of its young." Twigs, a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant that it may bring forth boughs and, and bear fruit. So he's giving all these statements of I wills, I wills, I wills, and thus says the Lord, and the Lord has spoken, right? And in that he's saying then, although these these events have happened and a covenant has been broken, what will I do? Yeah. I will do what? As I have spoken, correct? I will perform as I have spoken. I will keep my word. They've broken their word, but I will perform my word, right? So anything along those lines about the idea that, because what you're looking for is a connection to the word covenant. That's our main theme in this chapter, right? The idea of covenant. We see there's these two great eagles in imagery. Then Zedekiah breaks his covenant, and then God says, but I will do as I have spoken, Correct. I have spoken. I will perform it. You could do that. I have spoken. I will perform it. And then, if you want to put anything under there to explain that, like for instance, what were some of the uh, some of the other statements out there about how what is it that he's saying he's going to perform? Tell me some of your titles again. I've forgotten already. The, Okay, the Lord will plant his cedar, all right? That would be good. What else? I love that one. He will exalt the lowly and he will dry up the green tree. What does that verse make you think of? There's another study we did where God puts down and brings up. Daniel. Daniel. Yeah, he says about the kings. The kings, he says, I, I I set up kingdoms and I put down kingdoms, right? Here he's saying it for, about the trees. He says, I will bring up the high tree and exalt the low tree and and uh, the dry the dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. So he says, I will do the opposite. I put up and I put down. And even if it's dried up. In the book of Ezekiel, later we're going to talk about something called dry bones, right? And what is he going to do with dry bones? He's going to raise them up and put what on them? Flesh, right? It's talking about the repopulating of the land. So, what looks like it's dead, God can do what? Bring it up. And ultimately in conclusion, he says about all that he has said, what whatever it is that your mind goes to in the idea of putting up and putting down, he says what what about it? I have spoken and I will perform it. So so in the in the Picture here then of chapter 17 about covenant making. Man makes a covenant and he breaks it, but God says, I have spoken, I will perform it. Right? All right. Okay. Well, that was a tough one. I'm, I'm ready to move on somewhere else. Let's, let's go to 18 and see if I can do any worse. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Pardon? Pardon? Oh, chapter title. I almost hate to give it to you. Let's see. Let's see here. Let's see what I've got. (laughs) See, even I can mess things up good, you guys. 16, 17. Okay, so what have you got for titles on 17 girls and boys? That's a good one. I mean, in in some ways, it's it's vague in that you aren't going to really know what's in there unless you know about who the eagles are. And in... And since we can't decide who the eagles are, it might be a tough one to to later go back to. Um, What is our major word, our key word in this chapter? Covenant. So probably the word covenant would be good to have in your title. I like that one, God Keeps His Covenant. That's a good one. God will perform His covenant if you wanted to kind of use some of the words from the text. Okay. Yes. Okay, Israel Breaks Covenant... Uh, you know, or Zedekiah breaks covenant and God keeps his, <laughs> whatever, however you want to f- phrase it, correct? Okay. I does that? The Lord, I will also take That's exactly right. Here's what they do, and this is, yes. No this. Right. Right. That's exactly. So you you actually came to where I just was saying exactly is the point. Even if we don't know exactly for sure who that other eagle is, and we aren't in in agreement for sure on all the imagery relationships, we know it's talking about kings. We know it's talking about covenant and the breaking of covenant. And in conclusion, God says, "Well, you you break, you not only that, but you tear down and you and you pluck up and you destroy, right? And you dry up." He says, but I am going to plant and I'm going to make something thrive and I perform what I say. Yes? Uh,
1: Jeremiah 27 throws a little light on this this whole thing, too. And I'm going to pick out a few
0: verses here, but I think it'd be worth going back into. Okay.
1: Yep.
0: Now is that talking about Nebuchadnezzar being that land that the, will, they're gonna lay on his, his land? Yeah. Okay. So, good. He's saying, Hey,
1: you get this, you know, I'm gonna put you under the rule of Babylon,
0: but if you, don't, if you serve and don't rebel, then you'll be good. You'll be able to stay on your land. That's exactly right. And then, so, and then they didn't. And he broke his covenant. That's right. And that's when he was put, good. The Actually, now what did did Kate give us that twenty seven to go to? Well, I no, can't remember. Okay, well, that I read that exact one myself because I went through, of course, and did that list that you guys have seen and looked for all of the timelines of how things were unfolding, and I read that Jeremiah 27 myself, and I, and I thought, and I could visualize this chapter 17 as I was reading that. I was going, that's exactly what 17 is talking about, about him going in, Nebuchadnezzar making a covenant, putting Zedekiah in there as the king, and then th- that king breaking his covenant, and therefore... Yeah, yeah. Can you believe this? They didn't have to go into that full exile if they would have at that point. So what does that tell you about what God's process there is? God could have taken Israel and in one swoop with Babylon, fallen. Could have. But instead, what does God do? He comes in once. He comes in twice. And then finally, he says, okay, enough. And he comes in the third time and and he exiles them the option to repent to repent to repent they could have repented at any time had they repented god could have dealt with them differently he could have said okay they've repented all right good we can we can sustain them on the land then because as long as they will do what honor me bring me glory if they will live righteously as they're supposed to then i can leave them on the land right but they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they would all the way up to the very end, even to the point then that where we see here with Zedekiah in, in this chapter 17, he breaks the covenant with the one who's there almost to pounce on him. He's so arrogant, he never bows his knee. He never gets the picture. And the, the, what's interesting to me is, do you think Zedekiah understood the seriousness of breaking covenant? He knew. But did he care? <laughs> Obviously not. That's how arrogant and how willful he was, how defiant he was about, about just defying God and God's law. And God says, look, you're not just breaking a covenant between you and this other king. You're breaking my covenant. This is my possession. Covenant is my idea, as a matter of fact, because God brought us covenant and the idea and the concept of covenant from the very beginning so that we would understand salvation. It is through. As a matter of fact, I always tell everyone this. I teach covenants so that you understand what salvation is. And then I will teach you 1 John so that you understand whether or not you're in salvation or not. Those two, those two studies together, understanding covenant, gives you your understanding of salvation. And since covenant is God's idea, when we break it, he says, you've broken my oath. You have broken my covenant. He's possessive about that concept of covenant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and and he, he knows why because they they disobeyed God and they broke covenant and yet he's so arrogant as to to think that maybe little peace with their forces Yeah. Save and in what's amazing to me is it's after Jeremiah has already told him don't do that. Right, yeah. Jeremiah's already said don't do that. If you do that, you're going to be in big trouble, but if you'll just submit to God If you'll just repent, God will, you know, allow you to stay. Yep. 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 Yes, look on your list here. Uh, There is a a statement about that where it says um, in Jeremiah 28, in the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign, false prophets were speaking false hope to Israel. Do you see it? So there's a, one reference right there where you can go back in. You can see where Jeremiah specifically was up against these guys, and it was these guys that cast him into, into his prison. He was trying to help Israel, and Israel would rather hear the good news than the bad. Okay. All right, let's move on. We've got a lot more to get through. Let's go to 18 real quickly, see how badly we can do here. <laughs> I hope better. <laughs> All right, let's look at Ezekiel. Let's look at our keywords in this chapter. Iniquity, sin, yeah, a bunch of them. Iniquity or sin. Um, okay, so in essence, all about sin up there. And regarding sin, what else? Repent. The word repent was very big. Repent or turn, right? And then the contrast to that would be righteous. Okay. Oh, yeah. Then there was live and die. How many did contrast? Let's look at some contrasts in this one. Live and die was the first one. repent Repent or sin. Okay. Live and die. Righteous and wicked. I love doing these contrasts. When you go through the text and do this Not only looking for key words, but also marking those contrasts. Those contrasts help raise to the surface what primarily is going on in the subject of what you're looking at. It helps you to weed away from a lot of the distractive either imageries or the distractive storylines that are added into it. So you can really get to the nuts and bolts by looking at just keywords and your contrast. So right off the bat, you already see what this is about. Is who, Give me a fuller statement on your contrast design. Just live and die. Give me a fuller statement. The soul who dies is the one who does what? Sins. So in verse 4, he, sa- he says it this way. The soul who sins will die. Okay, and it's also in 20. And then the contrast to that then is seen where? Is there a verse that contrasts it? They ha- Okay, the righteous will live. And also in 9, okay, the righteous will live. So th- at least there's one right there in verse 4 and verse 9. The soul who sins will die, the righteous will live. Okay, so you see that. There, it, were there any other contrasts that you saw besides the idea of living and dying? Okay, where, tell me the verse where you're at. Which verses are you in? Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, that's more of a progressive thought. But yes, you're right about that. It talks about the man who lives and then he's got a violent sin and what will happen to him. So we'll cover that in just a second because we're going to look at our, at our titles here in a minute. That's the one I was hoping you guys would look for. He says in, in there, he says, you say, right, uh, my ways are what? Not right. Are not right. And then he says about his own th- self, he says, but my ways are what? Are right, <laughs> right? Is my way not right? Or is it not your way? That right? That's right. My ways, your ways, not right. Not right. You say my way is not right, but your ways are not right. Whoops. Wrong right. <laughs> yes. Okay, hold on. I'll get this. Okay, that's in 25, and it was also in, uh, yeah, both of them are in 25. That's correct, okay. So you say my ways are not right, but your ways are not right. My ways are right. So there's a beautiful contrast between what it's showing is the mindset of the people, the thinking of the people, and what was going on with them. Now, what was the imagery in this particular one? What was the imagery that was given in this chapter, 18? What was the what was the parable? The sour grapes. Here's our sour grapes, guys. Okay, so we have got sour grapes. All right. All right, good job. Now, it doesn't say that in the text. It's a conclusion. So now what what Kathleen has done, which is awesome, is called analytical. What she has done is she's taken the the picture when she evaluated everything. She's probably already done all her lists. She's done some contrast looking. Maybe she's even done a few word studies, but she's really been chewing on it a bit. And all of a sudden, What rises to the surface is this this thing called analytical uh, observation, where she's saying, oh, this is talking about sour grapes, and sour grapes we know is about national judgment, right? We just talked about that when we set this up, right? So in this concept here, she's saying in the contrast here is national judgment. And what is it contrasting with? individual judgment and that's just a concept it's not It's not a stated point it's an implied point that you draw a conclusion from having looked at it. so what what's going on here then is with Israel what are they complaining about to God and what is it that they're saying they're making this claim and why do you think they're even making the claim sour grapes have you guys ever worried, wondered about that word sour grapes what does that mean we oh, got sour grapes. Right, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. And in conclusion, they can justify and say, well, it wasn't even us. We didn't do it, right? They're justifying away, but they're saying that God is blaming them or bringing judgment on them for something that someone else did. Now, yes. Yes. Very good. I love that. because So he says, as I live, declares the Lord. Now, did you all mark those primary statements like like we talked about? Uh, Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, that was one of your key things. You have to open, that's in verse one. Verse three, as I live, declares the Lord. And then in verse four, he says, and behold, right? So those are like ultimate statements that you really kind of need to highlight as you're going along. Then later on, when you go into verse 30 and 32, there are two conclusion statements that say therefore. Did you notice those? If you note the therefores, then you're going to probably get the bigger picture of everything right off the bat. So what does the therefore in 30 say? Uh-huh. Right. They wanted to justify that there was someone before them that they were in trouble. That's right. you That's exactly right. So do you tell me you guys th- t- think about this for a sec. Do you think that God's ways of judging people had changed? when he established a nation upon a land and gave them the law? Was it always and uh, forever individual responsibility? And even though they were under a national vow to God, that yes, we will obey you, Lord, did that negate personal responsibility of the individual? Absolutely not. That, I think, is what's going on in this chapter. That's why uh, Kathleen says, it looks to me like he's saying there's a contrast here going on between national judgment. And he's simply saying to them, look, don't confuse national judgment with personal responsibility. Yes, there's national judgment. Why? Because you're my nation on this land which I gave you. But that does not erase or negate or do away with the fact that there is personal responsibility. And there always has been, always has been. That did not change just because they went underneath the law. But it seems like they were using the law as sort of a shield, as if that gave them carte blanche. It's kind of like being pregnant and you think you can eat anything. You forget you have to pay the piper after the baby comes, right? I mean, Us pregnant women would know that. I'm not a pregnant woman, but I mean, when I was pregnant, I ate anything. If it didn't run fast enough, I ate it, you know? So you eventually you have to pay these people were under this covenant and they thought we can get away with anything because we're under a national blessing. We're so special, we're God's special people, we're his chosen people. He will bless us because we are called by his name. And they they thought that gave them a free pass card on doing anything they wanted, right? Okay, so let's then go through here and let's title each of these things. This is about national responsibility versus individual judgment. God is correcting their thinking in this chapter, okay? It's a correction chapter. And he's saying, yes, there is national judgment, of course, but let don't you forget that there is individual responsibility here. And so you see then in verses 1 through 4, he says no longer use that, that phrase, sour grapes, done. And in, in a way, he's almost making a proclamation about a future thing that one day he's going to do away with that covenant and there's going to be no more national judgment, right? You will no longer use this phrase, sour grapes. Because why? I am no long, There's going to come a day when I will no longer do national judgment. It will all be individual. Okay? So he says, I will no longer use sour grapes in one through four. Then in five to nine, what does he tell us? A righteous man will live. Um, I don't have room to write it, so I'm, you guys are going to have to uh, have to write this on your chart. Okay, I'll I'll give it to you on my when I send it to you. Okay, so one through um, yeah, n- one through four. No longer use sour grapes. No, five to nine. A righteous man what will live. will live? So that he goes back and forth. He says, but if a righteous man practices righteousness now. Kay asked you to do a list on. What were some qualities of a righteous man, right? Did you do your list on that?
1: Yeah, it, it, you can almost use it as a negative as to the abominations. One who doesn't do this abomination and on that one. So one who does not eat at the mountain, does not lift his eyes to the idol, does not uh, defile
0: his neighbor's wife, etc. That's the righteous person. Isn't it interesting that. Yeah, it, I, I, I think it's really interesting, too, that as we've read through Ezekiel up to this point, every point here that he says the righteous man does not do all these things, these are the very things that Ezekiel has pointed out that they were all doing, right? So, exactly, he nails them. And not only that, but by the way, P- and P.S., these are really all qualities of the law, the written law that Israel lived by. These were things they understood that they were supposed to be complying with. So they weren't news. They weren't a new... A new insight, these are things that they understood. Okay, so a righteous man will live. And in 10 to 13, what? A violent son will die. Now, is there an, a, a practical application to this kind of insight at this point for you and I? What is it, Kathy? Okay. Becky? Yeah. Very. <laughs> I like it. you don't get grandfathered in. That's exactly right. You don't get born into the household of faith, right? You get you, you have to make it personal. So a righteous man will live, but if that righteous man has a son and the son is violent, what happens to the violent son? He will die. Then in fourteen to eighteen. He takes it to the next step. OK, but if you have a violent son, if you have a, in other words, if you have an unbelieving son and, he, and then he has a child and that child is righteous, what? He will live. Now, when it comes to sour grapes, the idea of sour grapes that they were talking about earlier, what is he saying here? You don't get judged based on what your forefather did, right? Any more than you get, you don't get the blessing, you also don't get the cursing. You individually are responsible. So he says the son of a violent man, if he's righteous, he will live. Okay, 19 and 20. Say it again, I couldn't hear you. Practice judgment and live. Yeah, okay. Practice judgment Justice, okay. Practice justice and live, okay. Or punishment will be where? Upon the the one that's wicked, right? And then in 21 and to 23, if a wicked man repents, what? Now, this is very interesting. If a wicked man repents, he will live. Now, how long does a wicked man have to make that kind of repentant? Until he draws his last breath, he has opportunity to repent. When I was watching that Daniel movie last night with Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar, he had been quite wicked. And he was a quite ruthless man. If you go back into history and read the history books on him, he was pretty harsh. I mean, he did some really vile, mean things, all in the name of war and all in the name of conquering, but still, he was pretty ruthless. And yet, what happens to him in the storyline of Daniel? He lifts his eyes to heaven and proclaims that God is most high. He makes edicts in the land that people are to honor the God of Daniel, right? He, He himself bows his knee and God heals him of his diseased mind at that time, right? But then this is interesting. Go to verse 24. Now, I marked it off as a separate title because I felt that it really qualified to have its own statement. What is the opposite? If the wicked man repents, he lives. But what else? If a righteous man turns to sin, he will die. Now, this is interesting. Did you notice the word practice in this section here, starting in verse 19 down to 22? Did you see the word practice, practice, practice? Did anybody mark it? In verse 19, it says, When the Son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he surely shall live. Why? He's practiced them. Okay? What is the implication there of someone who practices something? Ongoing, habitual, habitual. It's the pattern of his life, right? We see this in First John, where it says, "The one who sins shall, shall uh, surely die," right? Or the um, oh, I've forgotten exactly the phrase, but in there, it's exactly the same thing. First John chapter two it teaches that the one who habitually sins will die, right? So here, it's saying the same thing: the one who habitually practices righteousness is the one who is righteous. But he says, but if the wicked man turns from his wicked sins um, and practices righteousness, then he will live. Now, the opposite is true in verse 24. If a righteous man turns to sin, what? He will die. What do we know about Solomon? He did not finish well. He did not finish well. The last word written in the scripture says, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he built Azareth poles, and he had shrines on every hill, and he married all these foreign women. He, did, he broke everything that God told him not to do. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So this was a man who started out well, right? But how did he end? He turned to wickedness, didn't he? I know. Well, it's just because it just goes to show you God can use anyone, right? So if a righteous man turns to sin, he will die. I think that's important in 24. 25 to 32, then, therefore, what does God say? I love the therefores. Therefore, God is going to judge each one individually, right? But what does he say in the second, therefore? Repent Repent and live. Wow. There's a therefore in verse 30. See? And then the second one's in 32. Oh, okay. I was the I okay, good. OK. Repent and live. So what are you going to title the book on this chapter on the whole then? What is the major emphasis about? The judgment of the individual, right? You will be and you will be, and you will be and you will be. Everyone will be judged individually for their own thing. That's the first, therefore, statement. That is the major emphasis of the chapter, right? Okay, so title it. uh, Anything along those lines about the individual judgment of each man? Pardon? Out of verse 30? Yes, that's what I did. Or 32. 32. You could say repent and, and live as a message for the result or the the principle behind what he's saying here. But I think what's really important is here, he starts out with an imagery, and the imagery is about what? What was the imagery? Sour grapes. And the sour grapes was saying, as what Kathleen pointed out, was they were confusing what? National judgment with the fact that, that there's still individual responsibility. In, in
1: Jeremiah uh, fifteen four, uh, 4, God told them that you're going to be a horror to the kingdoms around you because of what Manasseh
0: did. Yeah. Yes. So sour grape, sour grape, sour grape. Manasseh did it. It's his fault. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. You're ab- absolutely right. So here, so here he's saying, nope, I want you to know each man individually is responsible. So th- what, what's really good to, to think about in that regard is, you know what, if the nation of the United States of America comes under judgment, what can you and I know as God's people? We each individually are judged by God for our personal choices and our relationship with him. And even if God does bring judgment, and even if we are here for the tribulation era, what? God will judge each one individually. And each one of us will either stand or fall based on our relationship with God, right? I love that. that. Let's very quickly do Ezekiel 19, and we'll be done. We've got about one minute to zip through it, but it shouldn't take long. In 19, this is called what? The title for this chapter is right in verse 1. Mm-hmm. A lamentation for the princes of Israel. So who are the princes of Israel? would be the kings, right? Okay. So he says in 1 through 5, what? What happens here? There's a woman, a mother, right? She gives birth, she has a cub, and then what happens? He's captured. Did anybody mark the word captured? If you did not mark that as a keyword, it is a keyword in this particular chapter. Chapter 19, captured. He was captured in their pit, right? And then he was with hooks taken to where? Egypt. Egypt. All right. Now, I almost dare not ask this question, but who is this? <laughs> oh, yeah, Joseph. <laughs> no. <laughs> Jehoahaz, right? Jehoahaz In 2 Kings 23. Now, what Kay pointed out to me was, I thought, was very interesting. Um, uh, Jehoahaz is, in, in those first verses, he's taken captive. We know that there's another king, Jehoachin, right? He reigned only three months. Then there's Jehoiakim. and the, so it looks to me like not all the kings are mentioned in here right they're not all represented correct so that gets a little bit complicated <laughs> all right so we got we have the first king he's captured then what happens in verses uh well actually it's uh 2, two through 4 it would be uh 6 through 5 through 9 right 5 through 9 because when she saw that Uh, saw as he waited that her hope was lost, right? Because he was still in his captivity. She took another of her cubs and made him a young lion, right? Now we have who? Jehoiachin, right? Jehoiachin. Now, why do you think Jehoiakim is missed? What does it say in verse 8 happened to Jehovah? There you go. Good one. Jehoiakim dies he does not actually go into his captivity he dies Jehoiachin is the one who's captured okay so that's got to be the clue and that's what caught my eye on the idea of captured was the fact that the one that was that seems to not be listed in here was the was the one that died so it says in verse 8 again and he was what captured in their pit so there's that word captured again right now, at verse 10, we switch imageries from the lion to what? Back to our vine. And who do we know our vine generally represents? Israel, right? And we actually kind of know it's Israel, don't we, because of the closing of verse 9. Well, at this point, it's what's left of Israel. But yes, it's Judah, Okay. It says, and so that his voice would be heard no more on the mountains of Israel, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, and it was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters, and it had strong branches fit for scepters of rulers. So it talks about this foundation, which would be the kingdom, having rulers, and it was strong. It was a kingdom that was strong, and it had rulers in it, Right. But what happens to this vine in verse 12? Plucked up in fury, right? Cast down to the ground and the east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off so that it withered and the fire consumed it. What does that make you think of that we've already looked at in Ezekiel? The wood, the wood, in, the wood of the vine which is burned, remember? So here we see it being plucked up and burned again. Okay, so in this, what we have then is a lamentation for who? These rulers, right? And they call them in the opening the princes of Israel. So it really is, is as simple as it l- lays itself out to be. It's about rulers who are captured and they're lamenting for them. Ultimately, the last lamentation part here is for who itself? The bigger picture, which is the nation, right? which is the vine that's represented. So it mentions a ruler, and then it mentions another ruler. They're both captured. Then the last one is the vine, which is plucked up. And that plucked up vine ends up where? In a wilderness, right? And therefore he concludes this is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Who defined the word lamentation? Who looked that word up? Anybody? What is a lamentation? Lamentation. You know, what does it mean? It's a woe of sorts, yes. And it's generally a song of mourning, okay? A lamentation is a song of mourning. So this is a song of mourning for those who have been captured and for the fact that Israel has been plucked up and thrown into the wilderness, which means it's in its captivity. Is it it's a regret and it's a sadness because the kings have been ripped up and the kingdom itself has been ripped up and has been taken into Babylon. So it's a, it's a song that they sing in lamentation for these kings. Very. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't, yeah, even if you don't identify the actual kings, which you may or may not, Kay took us and gave us some scriptures to try to line things up as much as we could, but more importantly is simply your understanding that Israel had these baby cubs that were, that are, their depi- their kings or rulers that are depicted as Cubs. And these cubs become rulers, and these rulers then are captured and thrown into the pit. And then the next one is captured and thrown into the pit. And then in the end, the vine itself is ripped up and thrown into the wilderness. And it's all about their captivity and capture and being exiled.